God is near. God is good. God is good all the time. You know, this past week has been a, a difficult one for many of you, I know, and for myself. And I was just thinking about this morning how good God is, even when things get tough, even when we look around and go, I don't see a lot of the good. We can still see God in it. And, you know, I can't think of a better place to be this morning than here with the people of God and here in the book of Psalms. What better book to bring our heart, our emotions, everything that's going on in our lives to a God that cares, to a God that hears us? That's Psalms. And so it's just been an incredible honor and privilege to preach Psalms through the summer. Uh, so we're in Psalm 60 today. Um, another beautiful preserve for us because God wanted us to hear this. You know, this was written 3,000 years ago. So you're thinking, wow, that was a long time. So what does that have to say to me today? And I want to say a lot because it comes from God. It's his holy scripture. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It still speaks because he's the same God. He doesn't change. We change greatly. Our culture changes all the time faster and faster and faster, but God is so faithful and so true to his word, and so that's what we bank on this morning. So Psalm 60, in the header, I mentioned this a few weeks back, the header is actually part of the inspired word. It's in the Hebrew scripture, it's verse one. So it's important, so I wanted to point out a couple things in the header of Psalm 60. The first one is lily of the, of the covenant. Don't know a lot about that other than that probably was a tune that some of the songs were written to. Um, and we're, it's the first time it's mentioned in Psalms up to this point. It'll, you'll see it as we go through the Psalms later. It'll reappear. Um, this is one of the last of the Psalms with a historical reference in the header. We've had kind of a series of these now that tie us back into the life of David, back into First and Second Samuel, into what was going on in his life that caused him to write this Psalm. And so in the header, it says, when he fought Aram Naharani and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. How's that for a historical reference? A lot of names there and a lot of, huh? Well, scholars trace this back, and you can go back and read 2 Samuel 8. It gives us the account of David in battle with all the nations that are going to be referred to in this chapter. He's fighting the Philistines. He's fighting the Moabites. He's fighting the Armeans. He's fighting the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 8. But what's interesting in 2 Samuel 8 is that as you read that chapter, it's one victory after another. He keeps winning. In fact, as he wins, people are bringing him gold and silver and items that he would later put into the temple of Jerusalem, of his God, and so he's, he's in victory. He's winning all the time. In fact, two times it says that God gave him victory in that chapter. What's interesting to me is that chapter 60 of Psalms is about defeat. It's about God not being with his people and rejecting his people. So where's the connect here? There seems to be a disconnect. And a lot of Bible scholars think that while he was fighting up north, in the Armenian area up north that the Edomites from the south and the east came in the back door and won a major victory against David and his armies. And so 
that's what the reference to the losing here and the battles and the fact that they've been rejected by God that we're going to see in a little bit. David's kingdom is growing. He's experiencing victory in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel's the Davidic covenant. It's an unconditional covenant that God made with David. And he said, David, the Messiah is going to come through your line. Your kingdom will never end. So when Jesus came as the Messiah, he referred to himself often as the son of David. That's the promise. Your reign will never end, David. This is all this victory, all this blessing that's going on in his life. His kingdom is advancing, but not without difficulty. You know, it's kind of like our life. There's good times where things seem to be rolling along, and we are good with God, and everything is making sense, and we are winning battles, and then there's the rest of it where nothing is going right. Everything we do is a mistake, and we're experiencing failure greatly. There's this illustration about John MacArthur that I wanted to read. It says, John MacArthur, who has a solid worldwide ministry, tells the story of what is known at Grace Community Church as Black Tuesday. How's that? It was seven or eight years into MacArthur's ministry, and he walked into a staff meeting one Tuesday morning and said, I want to tell you guys how much I love you, how much I appreciate you. I want to thank you for your friendship. Things are going well, right? One staff member, speaking for all, replied, if you think we're your friends, you've got another thing coming. A mutiny broke out in the church at that moment. If we look at John MacArthur's ministry, which is still going on, it's done well through the years, we might be tempted to think that his church has always gone from success to success with no setbacks. But that is not the whole picture. In David's life, there were victories, great victories, but it wasn't without setbacks. It wasn't without failure. You know, peaks and valleys are just a part of our life. In fact, we can learn more, I believe, in the valleys than we do in the peak seasons. In the failures, in the disappointments, in the down times, it's, I believe it's really there that we can learn the most if we're patient with it and we allow God to speak to us. This is a communal lament psalm. In the past few psalms we've been doing, it's been about David's life and where he's at. God, they're out to get me. I need help. Help me. What we're going to see in chapter 60, it's we. It's us. It's the community of Israel. It's your people, God. We're in this together. We're all in trouble. We all need help. So it's a, it's a very a communal lament psalm. And what we're going to see, the main point is even in times of defeat, even in times when we feel like God has abandoned us, we can be confident in God's unfailing love for us. So let's look at Psalm 60 today. I'm going to read the first three verses to start. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. Wow. There's seven verbs, seven things, seven actions of God that David points out and says, God, things aren't going well right now. And here's the list of the seven. In verse 1, you've rejected us, God. 
Defeat is, you know, it's one thing to lose in war, but to be rejected by God, that's a whole nother thing. One of the things I appreciate about the book of Psalms is that David is honest about how he feels in those times of when he feels like God has deserted him. Look at Psalm 10.1. Here's what it says in David's heart. He says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you, God? It doesn't feel like you're here. I feel like I've been abandoned. God, you've rejected us. God, you've burst upon us there in verse 1. It feels like we're battling God, not just the Moabites, the Philistines, and all those other ites. It's like we're in battle against God himself. It's like God has declared war on us. You've burst out on us, God. You've been angry there at the end of verse 1. We're experiencing your wrath. And trust me, that's not a place where you want to be. Experiencing God's anger. David says, that's where we are, God. He says in verse 2, you've shaken the land. Everything we thought was secure has just been shook. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I have a couple times in my life. I have faint recollections of one when I was up in Washington State as a child. And all I can remember is looking out the window and seeing the earth move like waves. It freaked me out. Even though I was in the house, by the way, I was running from the house to the outside, but as I was in the house, I was thinking, there's no security here. That's what earthquakes do. They shake everything up to the point where there's no security left in your life. And David's saying, God, it's like you've sent this earthquake into our lives. What we thought was solid and sure is pretty shaky right now, and we're looking to you for some help. You've torn the land open, God. What we thought was all together in one wonderful piece is now fractured and split apart. It's in complete disarray, God. Then in verse 3, you've shown your people desperate times. That's the title of the sermon. God, we're at the end of ourselves here. These are times where we don't have the answer to. And finally, you've given us wine. Not good wine that we're savoring and enjoying over a good meal. No, this is wine that makes us stagger. We're drunk. We're confused. We're disoriented. We're lacking the mental capacity to think clearly, God. We are in desperate times. So to sum it all up, he feels like they're in a state of war with God himself. Feel like there's this earthquake that's just taken everything in their life and just scattered it, put it into disarray, and then they're in this state of drunkenness and confusion. What a mess. But in the heart of these three verses, there's two things that David cries out to God. There's two requests that he makes of God. Spurgeon says this, to be cut off by God is the worst calamity that can befall a man or a people. But the worst form of it is when the person is not aware of it and is indifferent to it. The divine desertion causes mourning and repentance. When the divine desertion causes mourning and repentance, sorry, it will be partial and temporary. It's one thing to feel like you're cut off from God. It's another thing to be oblivious to it and not care. And it's when those moments cause you to go, hmm, what's going on here? Something's not right. 
and to look to God and turn and to repent, that's where the change happens. David assumes responsibility on behalf of his people. We, God, have caused this. He acknowledges accountability before God. We stand before you, and he responds with humility and repentance. That's his heart. And so he cries out to God. In verse 1, he says, God, would you please restore us? Please restore us, God. He appeals to God to restore his favor and his blessing back to his people. He he says, God, restore that relationship. We're cut off from you, and we need that relationship with you. Here's a truth, I think, that's important for us to grasp today. What God has done in judgment or discipline in our lives, he can restore in love and mercy. There's a great passage in Hebrews 12 that talks about the discipline that God brings into our life. We're his kids. He disciplines his kids sometimes, but it's a good thing. God is good, right? Here, but here's what it says in Hebrews 12, 5 to 7. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. It's a big deal. Don't ignore it. Don't say it's whatever. Pay attention. Do not lose heart either on the other side of that when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If you're his kid, he loves you. He's going to discipline you. It's a good thing. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children Package. Disciplining them. As parents, we know that. We love our kids. We know that our job is to train them upright, steer them in the right direction, discipline them. And sometimes it's hard, and we don't want to do it, but we need to do it because we love them. It's for their good. As a child, we need to understand that there's a reason for this. My parents do love me, and they are looking out for my, my good here. You know, God plows and weeds his garden, but the rest of the world is left to grow wild. Think about that. He's plowing. He's weeding us. It's not comfortable at times. But if we're not his child, we're left to our own devices out there, and that's not a pretty picture. That's not a pretty picture. Lord, would you please restore us? Would you please mend us in verse 2? We need to be fixed, God. We need to be sewn back together. We need to be everything put back into place after the earthquake has just taken everything and thrown it into a big mess. Here's a realization I came to many years ago as a pastor in ministry, and I don't know why it took so long for me to figure this out, but it's important. It's I can't fix people. I can't even fix myself. Why would I think I could fix anybody else? When people come to me and they say, here's the problem in my family and my marriage, all I can do is point them to this book, God's Word, and His promises, and go, man, I'll be praying for you. (laughs) I can't fix you. I can't. But God can. God is a God who can mend. God is a God who can fix, even in the worst of situations. Verses 4 to 5, there's a hopeful reminder. He's going to point out two things about God. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. But 
For those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. Two things he points out, a hopeful reminder. Things are in desperate times, but God, there's two things that I'm going to remember here. Number one, you have raised up a banner. What is that referring to? What is the banner all about? You know, yesterday was kind of the unofficial kickoff to the college football season. Yes. Some of you are with me. Some of you are going, I don't care. Some of you are going, oh, no. It's going to be extended moments of Saturdays of watching, you know, mindless football. I'm, I'm excited. And one of the things I love about college football is everything. But part of it is just the whole the scenery as you go to a game. One of the things I love is I travel down I-5 to Eugene and Corvallis. <laughs> is people have banners hanging out their car windows. You know what I'm talking about. They are rallying to a banner. They are excited. They're going to battle in their minds, and they're rallying around a banner, and they're waving the banner, right? And then you get to the stadium, and there's the cheerleaders, and they have these huge banners with the emblem of the team on it, and they're waving that thing. They're running through the field. It's just this huge, beautiful picture of raising this banner. What does that mean? It means it's a rallying point. We're in a battle, but there's a place I go where we come together where we're going to do battle and we're confident here. God says, I am that banner. I have raised a banner in the middle of the battle. I've raised a banner in the middle of the mess here that you need to rally around. In Exodus chapter 17, David would have known this story and maybe he had this in mind. There's this incredible story of the Israelites, they're fighting the Amalekites, and Joshua is down below in the battle. He's fighting the battle with his people against the Amalekites. Up on a hill above, looking down on the valley, is Moses with his staff, and then Aaron and Hur, H-U-R. And the deal is, Moses, you are to raise your staff, and as long as you raise your staff, things are going to go well down there on the battlefield. The minute the staff comes down and your arms get tired, your people are going to start to lose. It must have been an interesting scene. So what Moses did is, is he had Aaron and her help him hold his arm up with the banner over his people. There was a banner above them that they could look to and rally around. Exodus 17, verse 15 and 16, here's what it says after that battle the Israelites had won the battle because of the banner above them. Here's what it says. Moses built an altar, and he called the altar, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nissi. Just like that staff of Moses was there as a banner, that's who God is. Now, Jesus, we come to the New Testament, we see the Lord Jesus becoming our rallying point. Here's what he says in John 12. When I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
I'm that banner that I'm going to rally all my people to me. What is he talking about? Well, let's go to John 3, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, there's that story in the Old Testament wanderings, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There's the image of lifting up and raising up the banner of Jesus Christ on the cross to bear our sins and then raising from the dead to bring us victory over sin and death. He is our banner that is in our life. He is our rallying point that we can look to. So who God is, I'm going to look to who God is. He's our banner, but I'm also going to look at who we are in God's eyes. That's verse 5. You're a banner, God. Save us, help us with your right hand, that those you love, there it is, your beloved, that those you love may be delivered. In spite of the defeat, the failure, desperate times, they are God's beloved. God loves them greatly. So they cry out to their Savior, to their Helper, the fact that they are God's right, at God's right hand. In their culture, right hand meant strength and favor. In fact, the, word, the name Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes and my son, when I named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. That's what that name literally means. Son of favor. Son of my strength. It's a beautiful name. But that's who God's people are. They're beloved by God. What's interesting to me is God's love for us is a banner. Why do I say that? Because the Song of Songs says that. Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, which both are good. Song of Songs 2, verse 4 says this. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. By the way, I want to encourage you to think about the couples retreat. We're going to have Marty and Linda Trammell. He's written a book based on the Song of Songs. Great speakers. We had them last year. They're going to talk about the Song of Solomon, how it applies to us as couples, because it's a picture of Christ. The fact that his banner over us is love. The fact that no matter what's going on, we can rally knowing that we're loved by him. That's never going to go away. It's not going to change. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8, that great promise. We have God's banner, the fact that we are the beloved. So where do we go from here? Verses 6 to 8. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem, measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandal. Over Felicia, I shout in triumph. Okay, well, there's a lot going on there. So let's start with God's revelation. God has spoken from his sanctuary. Whatever our situation, I think David starts out with this on purpose because he, he goes back to what has God said about this. Whenever we're in any situation in our life, we need to go back to what has God said about this. Go back to his word. God has spoken from his sanctuary. This is God's holy word. It's set apart. 
In triumph, God says, I will lead my people. It's a holy word and it's a word of triumph in our lives. So we need to remember God's word. But then he goes into this long geographic explanation of his promises to his people Israel. So what is going on here? What are all these geographic names and what do they mean and what is God saying in all this? Here's kind of what he's saying. And one of the commentaries had this quote, it's no longer a matter of rivals fighting for possession of land, but the Lord of the manor parceling out his lands and employments exactly as it suits him. This is God who owns everything anyway, saying I'm gonna give you this. So I had to go get a map because all these names are places. So here they are. So I'll just kind of go through them one at a time. The first two, on numbers one and two up on the map, Shechem and the Valley of Succoth. It's interesting that it's the first area that Jacob returned to as he came back from his years with Laban. Now we've been talking about Genesis downstairs. When he came back from 20 years of labor, and marrying two wives, Laban coming back to the land, this is the first area that he resettled in, this area of Shechem and the Valley of Succoth. And what you see up there, the idea of east and west, one on the east side of the Jordan River, one on the west side of the Jordan River. He says, God says, I'm going to parcel out, I'm going to measure off this land. I own it belongs to me, I'm gonna give it to who I want. The second pair, Gilead, Manasseh. Gilead was an area, Manasseh was one of the tribes. Gilead uh, was settled by the half tribe of Manasseh. On the eastern side as well, there was an area on the western side of three and four. If you can see up there, Gilead is number three. Manasseh is really on both sides, thank you. <laughs> okay, so Manasseh. Manasseh is an interesting story, half-tribe, because Manasseh was one of Joseph's two sons that he had when he was in Egypt. The word Manasseh means, the Lord has helped me to forget. Firstborn of Joseph, isn't that beautiful? Everything that happened to me, Joseph said, the God has helped me forget that. And so he named his firstborn son Manasseh. His two sons got a half-tribe possession of the land. So Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he goes on to Ephraim and Judah, number five and six up there, if you can see those. Now it's more of a north and south alignment. Ephraim was the second born of Joseph's sons. God has made me fruitful in the land. Even though I was betrayed by my brothers, sold off to Egypt, God has blessed me greatly in this land. And it was his, so he named his second born Ephraim. Ephraim is God's helmet, meaning God's strength, God's power. That's Ephraim. Judah, God's scepter. That means symbol of authority and rule. In Genesis 49.10, when <clears throat> Jacob was blessing his sons, all of the tribes and all of them, this is what he said about Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Whoa, what's that all about? Judah 
the fourthborn, by the way, not the firstborn. He's the fourth in line of, of Jacob's sons. But for whatever reason, God chose him to be the one to carry on the line of the Messiah. Through him is going to come a ruler. There's going to be a scepter there. And eventually, he shall come, meaning the promised one, the Messiah. And the obedience of the nations, I mean, will be his. He's going to be ruling over the nations. I mean, it's a story of who Jesus is and will be as we look forward. It's this incredible promise way back in the book of Genesis. Judah is my scepter. Now, Ephraim became known as the ten tribes of the north later on in history that got carried off into captivity, that kind of rejected God, that went into idolatry. So that was Ephraim in the north, the northern kingdom, and then Judah was the southern kingdom made up of two tribes that followed God more, although in time they too got carried off into captivity to Babylon. But this idea that you can go east-west, you can go north-south, God says, but guess what? It's all mine. I own this land. Remember the promise? You can trust me here. Everything that's going on in your life is going to be worked out according to my plan. You don't have to worry. But now God turns his attention in verse 8 to the foreign nations, the people outside of Israel that surrounded them. He says, Moab is going to be a wash basin for my feet. That's number seven up there on the map. Moab was the, the people of Lot, Lot's descendants that came about after the whole, you know the story of Lot and coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, guess what? His descendants became a thorn in the side of the people of Israel for many years after that. But God says they're going to be a wash basin for my, for my feet, a place of honor, Israel, to a place of servanthood, to a place of humility. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to take my feet and wash the dirt off my feet with them. Then he mentions Edom. These are Esau's descendants who also were a thorn in the side of God's people for years and years. They battled them. Edom he says, I'm going to toss my sandal at them. Interesting, couple things. It's either tossing a shoe to a servant. I come in, I sit down, here's, here, take my sandals. That's one thought. Or it's more on the side of an insult. And in their culture, throwing a sandal or a shoe at someone was an insult. We saw this in 2008, if you want to flash that picture up there. <laughs> Maybe you remember this incident with George W. Bush. He was over in Iraq and someone in the audience didn't like him. So in their culture, one of the ways to display that in very evident tones, he didn't throw just one shoe, he threw both at George W. Bush, and George was able to dodge both of them. This is one in midair here as he was getting out of the way, and so I, I just had to shoot that up there. But in their culture, just showing the bottom of your shoe is an insult because on the bottom of your shoe is where all the dirt is. When we sit down, we cross our legs, we show the sole of our foot. You don't do that in Mideastern culture. It's very much an insult. So this is a thing of contempt is really what it is. This is my, these are my servants. Philistia, I'm going to shout in triumph. Now, there's no number with the Philistine people, but they're on the coast, the Mediterranean coast there on the map. Sorry, I'm pointing to a wall. There it is. Um, 
you can see Philistia there. It's just to the left of the number six, but they were the ones who were the, probably the biggest thorn in Israel's side and they, because they were the closest right there on the coast of the Mediterranean. So what is the hope for the mission is God's word and God's promise to his people, but what is the help? Verse 9 to 12, as we finish it up, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have now rejected us, no longer go out with our enemies, with our armies, sorry? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. He mentions this fortified city. A lot of Bible scholars believe he may be referring to Petra, which would have been in that region, that area, uh, which is now in present-day Jordan, but was in Edom back then. It was very fortified. God, who's going to give us the victory? Because you've left us. You've deserted us. That, it's still there. It's kind of lingering, that hurt. There's a choice that David needs to make. He can either depend on himself or alliances with others, or he can depend on God. Which direction is he going to go? Because he says in there, verse 11, human help is worthless. And I think that's just a reminder to us, if we're relying on people or ourselves to get things accomplished in this life, guess what? It's worthless. We need to put our trust in God. That's the choice that David's making. Because look at verse 12, with God. There it is. He's very confident. With God, we will gain the victory. He will trample down our enemies. Instead of being cast off from God or rejected by God, we're with God. God with us. Emmanuel. That's who Jesus is. God came to be with us. So now that God's with us, we're going to have victory. God's hand on ours, his feet on the enemy. David is confident that God would be victorious. He goes from corporate lament to corporate confidence in God's victory. I want to conclude it with a couple thoughts. Number one, our failures, our defeats in this life, whatever the cause is, do not undermine God's purpose and plans. It looks bad. God's still in control, and it's going according to his plan. Frog guts. That's all I got to say. If you don't know what that means, talk to someone around you. Fully rely on God. God's up to something. There it is. To feel abandoned by God versus actually being abandoned by God. We're going to go through periods of time where we feel like we're abandoned by God, but that is not a reality. Those of us that love Jesus Christ, that have the Holy Spirit in our lives, are never abandoned by God. His love will never leave us. It feels that way. So we have to understand, that's why we go back to the Word of God and the truth of God and rely on that. His banner over us is love. That's our rallying point. He loved us. He took our sins to the cross. He rose from the tomb to bring us deliverance from everything. Now we rally around his banner, which is love. God can restore and mend our lives. No matter how we might feel, no matter how messed up things might seem, God can mend, God can fix, God can restore. Please know that today. Go to him. I'll just, if you come to me, I'll just point you to him and to his word. I'll pray with you. I'll love you. 
But ultimately, nobody can fix you. Let God do that in your life, okay? Amen.